I got a lot of good things going on good in my life right now. Um, but one I'd like to, a minor one, if I might just share this, is my commute. I have a four and a half mile commute. Uh, for some of you, that's very short because you go all the way to the airport. For others of you, uh, you don't even go that far to, for your commute. But something has changed now that we're into spring. And the thing that's different is I get to go through six stoplights, which I wish there were only one, synchronized so that I could get through, so that, you know, it would be like an ambulance coming through in those six stoplights. Uh, every stoplight, I'd push a button. They said, oh, boy, Jim DeMoler's coming. Let him through. But that doesn't happen. The other bad thing about my four-and-a-half-mile commute is I'm on a highway, and uh, there's other people on it. They think they share it with me. Uh, and that's been fairly difficult because they don't go fast enough. Uh, then... Uh, but on this commute right now, I cannot, I mean, this is why I loved late spring here in Evergreen. I cannot go those four and a half miles without coming across deer or elk or a falcon or, or a fox or some other wildlife. You know how often I saw that in L.A. with my commute? You know, in Los Angeles, the only wildlife is behind a steering wheel. And... <clears throat> And, 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 and even so, when I get to the stoplight, if there's any stoplight I'm going to miss, I hope it's the one at Lewis Ridge Road, there near Wendy's, because then I have to go slow. I've got an old car. I have to go slow all the way back up Elk Meadow. And I look over at Elk Meadow, and there's about 18 different shades of green. Everything that you can imagine in terms of green, from the dark gray of the ponderosas, uh, to uh, to the light uh, green of, of the new aspens as they come out and get greener as the season goes on. I, I got to tell you, that is a really good commute. And too often, I don't take advantage of it. I just drive. I find that when I stop and I think of the moment, I find that when I, I, I really take advantage of looking over there and seeing the beauty of, of the privilege of living in Evergreen in the mountain area. Uh, believe me, it makes a difference. So I like driving to work. You may not. I like the work that I do. That's good. I like the people that I work with, and I like you. Hopefully you like me. We have come to this point. After 14 weeks of studying this letter that Paul writes to a band of Christians in the third largest city in the Roman Empire called Ephesus. Fourteen weeks, believe me, there's about eight more to go. How can you get that much out of six chapters? I work at it. It's part of my commute. And, and so if you were to go back nearly 2,000 years and you were to look at these uh, Ephesians and understand that they're living now as Christians in a culture that is different than the Christian culture they've just gone into, and so if you were to ask them, what's going right in your lives right now? The answer would probably be simply one word. All that's going right in my, wor in my world right now, in my life, is God. You see, a few years earlier, Christians got this reputation that they, there was a riot around Christians there in Ephesus. What was happening? Because they were turning to Christ, 
the future of the civic religion of, of Ever, uh, Evergreen, of Ephesus, was in danger. They worshipped Artemis. And Artemis had one of the greatest temples, which was like a Disneyland. You went to the temple, if nothing else, just to see it. And you made an offering because there was a, you know, something out there. But more than that, a whole economy of Ephesus was, or a sub-economy was built around this one thing, the, the worship of Artemis, and you can buy your little idol of Artemis, and believe me, that woman was not good looking. And she was deformed. But they would do these things because they believed that Artemis had come down from the heaven and she should be worshipped. So the economy was hurting because of Christians. Does that sound familiar? You hearing that today? If only the government would change things, if only we'd get rid of the Christians, maybe the economy would take off again. Jobs might be lost. Because of these Christ followers, business is hurting. They're just not buying these uh, idols like they did two years ago. You see, these Christians were, were well aware that uh, when you turn to Christ, it's not just that you put your faith in Christ, that you believe in Christ, but it's going to be costly. You had to live for Christ, and there would be cost involved. One would be not such a great reputation in terms of the economy in that town. It is the same today. Our core theology, the things that we believe in, are, are designed to affect and, and align the style of our lives. So I want to do an update because people are coming and going all the time. And I don't want us to miss what the core teaching is in the first three chapters. Otherwise, when we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, it becomes religiosity. It becomes rules. It becomes things you're supposed to do to be a good Christian. It's not about that. Instead of a religious idea, it's a relational idea. Because you're attached to God and God has become attached to you, this is what life will be like. So let's do a little update. Understand the first one half of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, all he does is brag on God again and again and again. Who is God and what has he done out of his love for us? Here are some of the great gifts that God has given us uh, to those who place their faith in Christ. Let me just list because it says, praise be to God for all the spiritual blessings. And here they are. Forgiveness, salvation, predestination, grace, pre-prepared good works. In other words, you're just catching up with what God's already prepared for you. Insider information about God's secret plans. You get power from God. You get adoption into the family of God. You get citizenship in the kingdom of God. You get indwelling by the spirit of God. You get redemption and reconciliation. And you get a resurrection life like the son of God. So with all these gifts that are given to us, all these spiritual blessings, he starts the letter this way. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Every means all. And, and then we're supposed to respond then. But do you understand what it means to get every spiritual blessing? Fast forward to me to the end of October, okay? Forward, not back. You got kids knocking at your door. And you come out with a bag of candy. 
And the candy, when you might say, signifies the blessings that God has given to us because as kids look at candy, their eyes light up. And so the kids come by, and for most of you, because you're very conscious about how much candy other kids get, a kid comes, and you're also conscious about how much this is costing, a kid comes and you take one of these and you put it in. Trick or treat, thank you. Oh, you look terrible. Please come back. Now, some of you are generous. And you will go something like this. Oh, I love that costume. You get the costume award. You get two. When it says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, what does he say? He says God has taken the whole bag and he's poured it out on you. The next Christian who comes by, no matter what the costume is, God takes another bag and he pours the same spiritual blessings on them. Nothing has been missed. You all get the same spiritual blessings. And it's overwhelming. It's the whole bag. This is what God has done. So there ought to be a response. What should the response be knowing he's given us everything he could possibly give? Now, I do understand You know, if I'm so blessed, why is life so normal? I get that. Maybe it's because you really haven't absorbed what some of these spiritual blessings are yet. Some of the ones that I read off. But our responses may differ when we find out how much God has done for us. You know, sometimes we will just bow down and worship and say, Lord, thank you. Or for those of us who are more secular, we're just overwhelmed. We say, wow, God, that's great. Some of us will use a thank you, God. Or even an amen. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you, Baptist. Okay. You know, as we use those words, understand that these first three chapters are designed to leave us breathless. In fact, we're to be so breathless that Paul sometimes did in ten verses just one sentence. He just hated punctuations when he was bragging on God. So now we understand that in Christ we are capable of living for God. He gives us the capability. But we also understand that we owe him so much that we are responsible, capable, but responsible to live for God and not for ourselves. Or like was happening there, where you live for the local culture, the local religion, uh, the way that the entire economy revolves around this this uh, false god named Artemis, um, Will it be the local culture or, you know, will you be one of those who goes along to get along? Or will people know that God matters to you because you matter to God? So in the second half of the letter, there is a shift. Uh, It's telling us what living for Jesus looks like. Now, I understand that times will change. But human nature, as you look all the way throughout history, human nature does not change. And these three chapters that we are looking at could be right out of today's headlines. If we follow Jesus, then he is not just the creator and the sustainer of the world, but he also becomes our heavenly father. And he is a great parent for us. And he has a vision for us. And he has a vision for what his family should look like. Since we have been taken from outside of his family and brought in, called spiritual adoption into his family, then he says, as your heavenly father, I want you to know I have three simple rules for you. Just very simple house rules. 
And the next half is categorized by this is this house rule number one, house rule number two, house rule number three. Isn't it nice to know that your father loves you so much he's not going to leave you uh, uh, wondering, am I doing the right thing? He says, no, it's just one, two, three. Take these away, memorize them. Every time you read Ephesians, just say, is that house rule number one, two, or three? So what are these house rules? Three simple house rules. The first one, very simple, get along. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not that simple, is it? It really isn't. Why can't everybody think like me? Because I'm right. And I realize occasionally... Uh, in fact, one of the great insights that my uh, my younger son gave to me once is he was trying to, I think he was trying to affirm me. No, that wouldn't be my younger son. But what, what he was doing, he, he, he said, Dad, every time you speak, you're always right. What he meant was, you think you're always right because you don't hear a word I say. Why is it hard to get along? Because we're individuals. And we have our own uh, sort of way that we approach life. It's not that we're against God, but we haven't really absorbed everything it means to get along with one another. And if you find that people are avoiding you or you're avoiding others, understand that we're allowed to have differences in the body of Christ. We're not photocopiers, photocopies in terms of one another and the way we think and what our values are. But we have a gift of God, and here's how it's stated. Make every effort to keep the unity. God has provided us with a unity. It is from God to keep the unity of the Spirit. It comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling each of us through the bond of peace. And I love it when people are seeking each other out to keep that unity. It sometimes takes a lot of talk and a lot of listening to one another. But believe me, if there's no unity with you and other believers, or, you know, if we're struggling here as a church in terms of the direction we're going in, we're we're told to rush to do this. Put it at the top of your list. Get along. The second house rule is contribute. But to each one of us, a grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I'm not talking about money, though we would gladly take any money you want to give to us, especially if it's legal, okay? But if you want to give us illegal money, please don't know. Um, No, we'll take it. But it's not talking about this. It's talking more about our efforts. God has individually and specifically gifted each one of, of his children in ways to better build up the body of Christ, the family of God. And I hope you know what gift he has given you or multiple gifts. And you found some ways to use them among us. Otherwise... You know, it's the difference between going to a baseball game where you're an attender or going to a baseball game where you're going to get up to bat and try to hit that little ball. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Hopefully you understand it and you're participating. And then the third rule, and that this is really what most of these three chapters are about, is the rule grow up. House rule number three, grow up. So... Uh, can we go back to the slides? I'm going to go backwards. I didn't prepare them for this. Don't worry. But I'd like us to repeat. What's house rule number one? Get along, okay? Get along. House rule number two, out loud. Contribute. House rule number three, grow up. Now, I used to say that to my children. Grow up. 
you know, but I'm three. (laughs) Yeah, but grow up. It doesn't matter where you're starting from, whether you've been in the, you know, in the family of God for 40 years or whether you're just a few months along or you're getting reintroduced because you took a break. He's, He's saying grow up. And what we're looking at here is talking about growing up. So we're getting to this point, and uh, I just want you to know, I took, this is the first time I've spoken in five weeks here, um, and uh, as I had some medical leave and uncertain of the side effects that I'd have. So uh, you, you have to give me a break. You have to give me a break. I'm only going to do one verse. Wait a minute, Jim. You just did four chapters. Yeah, but I'm only going to do one verse in those four chapters, okay? More than that, if you think one verse, you know, you're not getting your money's worth, I've got a cancer card here, all right? So if you start complaining, I'm just going to pour that out on you and say, hey, I got cancer. Give me a break. I tried that with Barb, but we laughed for about 20 minutes. Because it's just... It's just not me. So you know I'm under duress if I pull it. All right. So one of the ways that every Christian needs to grow up is in the personal attitude and standards for the work that they do. And understand this is not about how others work. It's about how I work and about how you work as a follower of Jesus. We have to understand that whether you like it or not, Our whole creation revolves around the fact that we were made to be workers. Why? God's a worker. And God made us in his image. And so it says in Genesis 1, 28, Then God blessed them and said to them, Now here's the one who created the universe, who sustains the universe, and, 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 and more than that, who, who, who encourages us and does spiritual work in us as well as other work. And he said to the first male and female, Be fruitful and multiply and increase in numbers. Fill the earth and subdue it. And so they understood that they were to be growing or harvesting the food that God is providing for them. He does a lot of the work and in, in setting it up, but, but they had to in, be involved in the work too. God is a worker. He creates, he sustains. That, that's work. He makes uh, living things. And finally, he makes humans who are told to be in his image or created to be in his image. And so you, each of us, is a real piece of work. And I'm a real piece of work. Now, the, the, uh, uh, the most amazing thing that I come across here is I find that people say, well, you're talking about my job or my career. No, I'm talking about your life. Let me give you an example. We have retired people in this church. Oh, I don't work anymore. Oh, come on. You've gone from being an engineer to a house cleaner. And if you don't keep the house clean, you're out for three days. Come on, that's the way it works. We have widows in our church. And uh, those among our widows are often caring for their aged spouses or needy people around them. They continue to work. Some of our men have gone from uh, from technology careers to driving buses, but they're still working. Some of them have picked up their hobbies, and their hobbies are spending more time than they did at their work. Because at your hobbies, they're not saying, hey, we're not paying overtime. you got to go home. Or this is off the clock. 
What is different about retired people is they're retired, but they're still working. And they always tell me that they get to do what they want. And they're not told to do what to do or they're not paid to do it anymore. So they sort of like this work, even though there's not much money in it. But they're still working. They work at their hobbies until they can work no more. Do you understand that this is just carrying on what God has set up? That God, our Heavenly Father, Jesus said in John chapter 5, is always working. His Son is always working. His Spirit is always working. Boy, I hope his spirit is always working because I invited him here this morning. If he takes Sundays off, I'm toast. Always working. So we understand that, that it doesn't matter in terms of you know what we call our work. The chances are we have an assignment and it's good to understand that this is the assignment God has given us. And he's working from now until we go to heaven. And in heaven, I'm told, we're going to be working there too. There'll be assignments given to us. So that is the whole way that the, that uh, nature or, or God set up nature and for us as humans. So if we're going to be workers, how about doing our work right? The way that God tells us to do it. The standard of the ancient culture. Now I'm going way back to the times of Ephesus here, the time of this book, about uh, 60 A.D., The standard of the ancient culture was take every advantage you can to make the best living you can. Now that differs from, of course, our current economy where we say take every advantage you can to make the best living you... Oh, they're the same. You see, times change. Human nature does not. Let me give you an example. Uh, I just heard that Goldman Sachs, which was bankrupt seven years ago, okay? Goldman Sachs just has received for summer internships 250 applications for low-paying jobs. What did I say? Did I say 250,000? 250,000 applications for low-paying jobs. They want entry into that. And they're hoping that by working their gazungas off, that they can get a job through that internship. There's no way that they can review all of those applications. Goldman Sachs doesn't have a staff that large. That goes to the IRS. Um, There's no way that all 250,000 will get a job. And there's no way that they can even follow through to find out, is this person telling me the truth? Is the resume correct? Can I go onto the Facebook page and see what what foolish things they put on there? You know, 250,000. College students, what is going on? Our economy is shifting, and and we're finding that fewer and fewer people are wanting to go into medicine or engineering because the money's not there. Not there like it used to be. And this disgraced bank, bankrupt, that was saved by, you know, by your contributions through taxes or what you will be giving in the future, uh, that, that they just can't get enough. And people are just dying to live there. You see, our ancient world and our human nature remains the same. In the ancient world, scales were not accurate. Contracts were doctored. Promises were forgotten. 
So one party could take advantage of the other so the other party could make the best living that he or she could. Take it down to the current world. Both candidates for president of the United States of America are being scrutinized about their integrity in the private and the public sector, and for good reason. Words like fraud, cronyism, and kickbacks are being used, applied to these two candidates. Paul had a word for it. Paul's word was stealing. Very simple. He says, these people, if you, you know, if this is your past and you found yourself stealing, understand that you need a new attitude and a new activity as you go to work. So he knew that the culture of Ephesus was a human culture. And he knows that people by nature steal from others to get more from themselves. And so he sets a new standard. What he's saying is that you business owners who are in the church, You make promises and fulfill them. You employees and you slaves uh, do not claim to do work that you did not do or put down hours that you did not work. You government employees and soldiers and people in the the court system, the, the legal system, do not take bribes. It's stealing. And so to each of these members of God's household, he says, grow up. Grow up into God's integrity and work honestly with a new goal. And I'll get to that goal in just a minute. In our work, we usually work for what we like and what will support each one of us. And there's nothing wrong with wanting a raise or expecting that, you know, or, or, or saying, I've, 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 I deserve a raise. And if we get raises, what do they allow us to do? They allow us to have a better life. With a little more money, we can have better health, a better home, uh, better hobbies, better vacations, and better stuff all around us. The human way is not, you know, this this method of getting more so we can have more stuff. It's not evil unless it neglects totally what God says as to why we work. And here it is. Verse 28, chapter 4. My one verse. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but he must work. Paul says this same similar thing in Colossians. Jesus says it often. Doing something useful with his own hands. That doesn't mean reaching into other pockets and taking out wallets, okay? Doing something useful with his own hands. That he may have something to share with those in need. We transform from stealing as Christ followers, taking every advantage we can for ourselves, to from stealing to performing honorable work. And from that honorable work, we can make a living to have a better life. That's not a bad thing. But the end is not just better for ourselves. God adds something that I rarely see, especially in, 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 in our community. I work so that I will have something to share with those in need. I have enough for myself, and I have something left over to share with others. I was wondering as I was studying this this week, you know, how can I evaluate myself if... It's not fair that I tell you to do it if I'm not. That's called hypocrisy. And I'm a pretty good hypocrite, but it's just not fair. So... 
there's a lot of things that I must learn to do better. But how can I evaluate myself? Am I living this verse? Am I setting aside or, you know, having some sort of fund that I can share with others, especially share with those in need? Because, you know, my family comes, my children come, my, my siblings come, Barb's family comes. Of course we're going to share with them. Shame on us if we don't. But he's saying, no, one of the goals for your work is to make sure that you have enough. God's going to provide it, and you will have enough to share with others. I asked myself four questions this week. You think about it. See if they fit you. Am I giving my work good hours and a good number of hours? Am I giving my work good hours and a good number of hours? Now, my job is different. Uh, When I wasn't paid to be a student didn't like studying much. I like it a whole lot more now. It's really pretty good. Part of my job is studying, teaching, but also includes people and and administration around here. Second question I ask is, do my expenditures reflect any help for those in need? Is there any evidence that that I'm doing what it asks? Any real evidence? Uh, Let me just highlight three of the missions that we support here. That I know every time you give to them, you are fulfilling this command in some way. The three ministries that come first to mind would be Evergreen Christian Outreach, which we support here. And when you give, I give canned goods to them. I know that those canned goods go on a shelf, and that shelf is empty by Thursday. It's just the way it goes. So I know I'm helping those in need. Next to the, the crisis pregnancy center or pregnancy center, I realize that when I give to them, and Father's Day is when these baby bottles come back, I realize that when I give to them, that here is what is going on. They are helping, especially mothers who are struggling raising children and, and maybe don't have enough even for themselves. And they help with clothing. They help with the, the stuff you need for babies, as well as other things and, and free testing. It's a wonderful thing. So there's Echo and the Pregnancy Center. And right now, I don't think she's back yet, Diane Povermiller is in Romania. She's been going since 2001 to Romania. And she started with these children who I think fit this idea of they're the poor in spirit. These abandoned children that were thrown into, uh, they said schools, but they were orphanages in which they were poorly cared for and told you're of no worth to anybody in this world. We, you know, it's only the government that says we have to keep you alive. We're now 16 years later and they're young adults. And they're struggling. And their needs are more emotional and spiritual. Yes, they have physical needs. But I know that whenever I'm giving to one of those, boy, the money is being used well, and this is exactly what Paul is sharing here. And finally, my last question is, uh, uh, I got, sorry, I got two more. Have I attempted to help those with, with such needs? Uh, by needs, I mean uh, physical, mental, social, emotional, spiritual, and, and financial. Do I ever help them personally, not just give to these ministries? And finally, do I give time and prayer to those in need? It's funny because uh, one of the things that a new church has done has made those who are in need 
look at the church and go, there's money there. There must be a lot of money there. And they come by a little bit more than they used to. And they're seeking help. And we try to help them. If you're wondering, you know, this is just one verse. Is there anything else? Yeah, you can read Colossians. He says something very similar. But about 25 years before Paul writes these words, the Lord Jesus speaks on the same subject. Now, as I read this, I want you to know it's not really a parable, but it's what's called an exaggeration or a hyperbole. He says this, but when you give a banquet, I don't know how often you do that. He says, well, who, do you, who would you usually invite to a banquet? Uh, we just had a wedding here. Friends of the family went to the banquet. Of course. But he says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Oh. Now, I want you to know that does not mean that, therefore, when they come, when you are doing what this says, have enough to share with those in need. When they come, you don't look at them and say, how blessed I am. But there is a blessing coming. So we will lavish our resources on those we consider friends and family. We invite them into our homes and we should. But here he is saying, I want you to be able to give to those who have need because you are stealing no longer. You're going from being a net receiver to a net giver. And I want you to know that I will repay you. Well, wait a minute. How? Will I get a good feeling? Not guaranteed. Will I go away patting myself on the back? That's guaranteed. That's ego, okay? We all have that. But he's saying, I will repay you at the resurrection of the righteous. A time is coming when you will be repaid. We'll all leave here today. And, you know, we'll spend some time in our lobby and build community and love on each other. But tomorrow, each of us has some sort of a commute. I want you to understand that that commute is your preparation for your assignment from God. This is your work for Monday. Now, some of us will commute many miles. Many of you commute far more than four and a half miles. Others of you, I love technology. You commute from the breakfast table to the home office. Is this a great world or what? Man, I love that. One of these days, I'll wind up what a home office is, and I'll do it. But, you know, you, the idea here is that it doesn't matter how far you commute. The issue is, take this with you now. Make your commute time. The time you need to align your work for the day. So that... You are saying my work is put together to honor God and I am going to steal no longer. Let's pray. Father, if I'm not doing this now, I give it to you at this very moment and hope others can join in with me. I make you my boss first and foremost. I realize I answer to you in my work. Next, I change my whole job description, Father. Because wherever I am working, there is a ministry there. To the people around me, and also to the excellence of the work that I do. 
I change my purpose in working. Yes, I want my earthly boss to be pleased, but I also realize there's something eternal going on here. I work to please you too. And I want to make you good, you look good to those around me. And Lord, I trust that if you've told me this is how I'm to live, then you will make sure that I am provided with enough to share for those who are in need. I pray that my schedule, my checkbook, my resources will prove that somehow, some way, I have on mind those that matter to you and matter to too few on this earth, those who are in need. We thank you in Jesus' name and God's people said.